The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. We always give a graphic content warning at the beginning of each episode, but I can't stress enough how horrific the case details are for this one. This is the case of baby Eloise, and it shows the importance of the interplay between digital evidence gathering and old school detective work. The lead detective establishes the timeline using classic interview techniques, and then the examiner finds digital evidence, along with medical evidence, that proves he's lying. Some of our other cases involve more smoking gun digital evidence, but this one is illustrating the increasing need for digital evidence to work alongside other case details. You may notice this episode sounds a bit different. It was recorded live at the Magnet User Summit in Nashville, Tennessee in April 2022. And we get another perspective in this case from the prosecutor. Joining us for this recording is Assistant District Attorney for Nashville-Davidson County, Jan Norman, alongside Chad Gish, Detective and Forensic Examiner for the Nashville Metro Police Department. Hello and welcome to this episode of Digital Forensics in Real Life. It is Magnet's podcast about true crimes that have occurred and were prosecuted with the help or solved with the help of digital forensics. So we are so fortunate today that we have with us Chad Gish, detective here from Nashville. He's been a podcast guest already with us, so there's already an episode out there for anybody interested in hearing about that one. But we are exceptionally fortunate today to have Jan Norman here with us. She is the assistant district attorney for Nashville, Davidson County. And thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Kim. We are going to be talking about a case. It's the death of baby Eloise. And I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up that some of the details you'll be hearing may be graphic. Uh, They may be bothersome. Feel free, get up, walk out, whatever you'd like to do. Thank you all for being here. And I want to ask you, Jan, you're prosecutor here, which is a different perspective that we typically don't get because when we're talking to folks, especially on our podcast, it's usually from the investigator perspective. So just generally, can you tell me maybe what you're seeing in digital forensics or you know how it's helping you prosecute your cases? So digital forensics, to me personally, is like the new DNA where it used to be DNA evidence was what you were looking for, you're looking for prints. I cannot remember the last time that I had a case where DNA did anything to help my case, but digital forensics is the evidence that we're looking for in prosecuting cases, specifically homicides, which I specialize in prosecuting violent crimes, and I can't remember the last time I prosecuted a case where I did not have digital evidence that was critical in the prosecution. Wow. Now, I have to tell everybody, I have actually watched some footage of Jan in the courtroom, and she is a firecracker. She does a great job of being able to explain to the jury how the digital evidence helps solve the crimes, right? Which, specifically for timelines, the digital evidence is so critical, and the timeline is always the first thing that we're looking at, especially in a homicide investigation, of trying to be able to rebuild that timeline and show them exactly where everybody was at a certain moment and what they were doing. Tell me about how you came to know about the case of baby Eloise. So the case of baby Eloise, there was, uh, we had a child abuse 
prosecutor who's a specialist, he's incredibly intelligent and very good with all of the medical evidence, and he was terrified of digital evidence. He knew that we had Facebook messages and other digital evidence, and it scared him. And so he came to me and said, Jan, I heard you know about digital things. Would you please try this case with me? <laughs> so I got brought in specifically for the digital evidence. Um, when I came in, I realized the digital evidence was not really that complicated, but he really, just hearing Facebook messages alone, terrified him, not to mention the XIF data from the photographs that we had, and being able to take data from multiple different devices and putting that together to present to a jury, that was the piece that he didn't even want me to explain it to him, he just wanted me to do it and not bother him with it. Um, so I came in and of course, Detective Gish had done an amazing investigation already and then we started piecing everything together because again, the timeline was just so critical in determining who should be charged and what they should be charged with in this case. So tell me just briefly, Chad, just a little summary about exactly what happened within this case and then we'll talk about the digital evidence. Well, most cases that Jan and I work together, there's a lot and to go back on what you were saying earlier, Kim, when you watch Jan on, uh, in the courtroom, it's really like watching an episode of Law and Order. I mean, it is unbelievable. So there's a lot of cases that she tries uh, and that she has tried here recently that you can go back and catch. And you can learn a lot from these. I've went back and actually looked at some of these. We've had the Waffle House mass, sh mass shooting case that we had just a month or two ago, right? We've had the Vanderbilt case with the football players that raped the co-ed. And we've had, what was it, four different trials for four different people? McLawhorn, that, that case is out there that you can watch. That's the one that we did the podcast on earlier. There's probably 15 or 20 that you can really get a lot of, of information with digital forensics on. The, the difference between this case, I think, and a lot of the other cases that Jan and I work together, are a lot of those cases that I just mentioned are digital forensic centric. It's she comes over to my lab, we start going through this evidence together. She's a resident expert in her own realm in digital forensics. So it's not like a lot of prosecutors whenever we're talking about, hey, this is the text message that was sent. They understand that, a lot of them. This is the XF data, they understand that. But you have to have a prosecutor on board with you that when you're talking about the differences between daily internet history and weekly internet history, they know what you're talking about. They need to be on our level as experts, and Jan is that. When you're talking about offsets and time and date structure and why this is in UTC versus local time, she understands that. She'll pose those questions to me. But in this case, it wasn't totally digital forensic centric. It wasn't a lot of the reports that we do in digital forensics that we complete, give to the court, and we go to trial with it, and there's not a lot of other things involved because, right, how much data do we get off phones today? Everybody carries this computer in their pocket. Now, I mean, I've always said this, the icing on the cake is what they said and where they were. We are probably in the phase of digital forensics where we can recover more location data, more text messages than we ever have been in our, in our life, right? Um, even though a lot of times we can't recover deleted text messages, but just what they said, where they were. Those are sledgehammers when we're talking about evidence that you can bring forth. Although we didn't have a lot of where he was, we didn't really need it, we knew where he was, we had what he said. 
So this, as Jan said, we created a timeline with the digital forensics that we had. And I want to say, Jan, it just totally supplemented everything else that you had put together through the physical evidence that was found against Eloise. It was a little different that way. So this was from 2012, is that right? Correct. So this is from July of 2012. Eloise was a 16-month-old little girl. She was the only daughter of her mother, Nina Costanza. Nina had been dating a guy, Jacob Hughes. I think it was for about six months. He had previously been in the military. He had been discharged for misconduct. And they were living together, using drugs, and not really having a super productive life. Uh, Jacob Hughes wasn't working at the time, but Nina Costanza was working. She was working at a Sonic. And so she allowed Jacob Hughes to babysit baby Eloise on a regular basis, and specifically on July 8th of 2012. And the evidence in the case showed that he had baby Eloise at some point, he calls the mom. Well, he doesn't actually call her. He messages the mom that she needs to come home. When she comes home, she finds her daughter covered in bruises, giant bruise on her face. She's completely unconscious. She has a large bruise with an actual bite mark on her leg. And the mother had called 911 on her way home based off of the information and the messages. The fire department, the Nashville Fire Department, firefighters that responded, I was actually taken aback when I met with them because I've never seen fire department men cry. And they actually were emotional, bawling, crying, just talking to me in a pretrial meeting. Wow. Because they had never seen a baby like that before. So that was kind of the scene when they came in and they find this living room of this apartment where there's a laptop, a Blackberry, uh, I think there was a phone, but the phone didn't have any service to it, and that's kind of sitting out in the living room, which, thank God, our detective seized all of those items because they all ended up coming into play. This case has so much digital evidence in it, which is odd that the suspect doesn't have a cell phone that has cell service at the time. Usually that's what we're looking for. He did not have that, so he was using all of these alternative means, which ended up really helping us build that timeline by piecing them all together. So after you learn about the case and, and you're uh, trying to get all the evidence together, so you said the digital evidence helped in this. What was some of your other evidence that you had as well? Both the mom and the boyfriend gave statements to the detective at the hospital. Mr. Hughes described the baby falling, of course, because I feel like all child homicides, the defense is the baby did it to themselves. And he gave this scenario where he's giving the baby rescue breasts and trying to give her CPR, which he locked himself into a particular timeline. And part of it, too, was whether or not it happened before the mom went to work or after the mom went to work, because that's the other default. You blame the last person that had the baby before you. So we were looking at establishing all of those things together. One of the critical pieces of evidence um, for part of the timeline, Jacob Hughes actually took photographs of baby Eloise after he assaulted her. So we had a photograph of her with a giant bruise on her face. And that was, I think, the first photograph that he took, which 
part of it from my perspective, and I know this isn't a digital forensics issue, but when you're dealing with abusive head trauma, especially in small children like this, everything about the timeline and how the child is acting, that is critical to presenting that evidence to a jury. Because the child abuse doctors, the medical examiner, they are going to be able to describe, based on those injuries, when the victim would be symptomatic and how extreme those symptoms would be. And so anytime you have a physical child abuse case, you're wanting to know when was the last time that this baby was acting normal because that is critical to us being able to prove that timeline. So the medical testimony actually marries with the digital evidence from my perspective of presenting the prosecution to the jury. And so it's really important to be able to set out this timeline so that we can integrate those two things and show what we know happened and why we know this person is the person that abused the child. Even though the Blackberry, as Jan mentioned, didn't have service, it was a Blackberry Bold, uh, the date and time stamp on it was set correctly. So we were able to get an image of the Blackberry and the pictures on the Blackberry itself were being saved to the micro card on the, on the phone. So when we pulled those out, I believe it was seven pictures, actually seven pictures that he took of Eloise. And I always called them, it was just in different stages of her death. They were taken over a period of time, but one of the pictures he took of Eloise, she was sitting on the lavatory right here with a fuller in her mouth, a, a pacifier, and her face just bruised just completely. And then he mentioned something about her diaper I believe in, in one of the text messages, but he had taken pictures of what was blood already inside of her diaper. Now, from a forensic aspect, it was important, number one, to make sure that date and timestamp was correct, and they were. So we were able to pull all of this, this XF data and the date and timestamps of when they were taken, and that married completely with the scenario and Jan's motive that she's gonna discuss here in a second. So is this how you went about presenting this in court then? You said this timeline is very important in how the crime occurred and how it had been going on for a while. Is that how you approached it in court? Yes. So we charged the mother with child neglect because other evidence that wasn't actually presented at the trial for Jacob Hughes showed that he had been abusing her. She had taken pictures on her phone of injuries that she received, but she had multiple pictures of baby Eloise with other bruises from previous to this incident. And there were multiple messages that showed that she allowed Mr. Hughes to discipline the child. They had a timeout map that was in the room that was part of the crime scene photos that they messaged about but there were messages that specifically referenced him causing injury to her before. So that allowed the mother to be charged, which she pled guilty before the trial. So when we were going forward for the trial, it was just on Jacob Hughes, and we focused just on what happened that day. Um, but we did have multiple different devices and pieces of evidence. And this is one of the cases in which I submitted things very thoughtfully of submitting, okay, here are all the Facebook messages because they were using Facebook Messenger to communicate because his cell phone did not have service. So let's put in all the Facebook messages, but we're not gonna talk about those yet. So we have, I actually still have my trial notes and I'm like, but don't tell me about this yet. <laughs> Only give me the basics. Then we put in 
all of the pictures from the BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. So let's put that in so that we have all of that information. And then we also had a laptop and we had the mother's phone. So we put in every piece of information, the reports, and because it's voluminous data, that allows us as prosecutors to say, my expert witness has compiled all of this voluminous data into a timeline format to combine it, and he has a report that will assist the jury. So then, instead of having to go through the report separately, it's all merged into one presentation. And so we had all of that ready to go in a presentation, which I feel like it was quite lengthy. Um, very very <laughs> so lengthy. Let me ask you, you did your examinations and, and then of course, you know, working back and forth with Jan in order to be able to, you know, help her assimilate this, this timeline. Tell me about, uh, you mentioned this was from 2012. Tell me about one of the tools you used. Ten years in the technical world is really like 25. I mean, it was many, many moons ago. And we used IEF. It was Internet Evidence Finder. But it worked. It did what we need to back then. And now one of the things that was really important, and as an examiner, I would still do this today. When Detective Bruner brought her phone in that had the credentials on it, and I looked at the phone. Jan actually called me and told me the phone was coming. I looked at the phone, it was live. We had consent to go through the mom, Nina's phone, to capture all of these evidentiary Facebook messages back and forth, and it was horrible. So what's the first thing I did in 2012? I mean, I started taking screenshots with Fernico. I mean, it's up, I'm gonna scroll through and start taking screenshots, and that's the first thing that we did, right? Second thing we did is grabbed an image of the phone, and so we would have it. But could you imagine today? I mean, I probably would still take the screenshot since it's up, but you know, we could just take those credentials today, put them right in Axiom Cloud, let Axiom Cloud download not only the public, but you know, the private information that she has. And Jan and I just did this in another case. And now you're getting all of that data that's going right into Axiom. And then it's pumping out a report that we know what it looks like, but the the prosecutors, man, they can go through the report now, they can search, they can select, they can bookmark, and there may have been a whole lot of other pieces that we missed just because we didn't have a tool and appliance like Axiom Cloud to download all of that. I mean, it makes me think, what are we going to be doing in, you know, 2032? Who knows? Right. You assimilate this uh, timeline, you're uh, prepping for court. Did you have any surprises along the way? I mean, you, you've got this data you're trying to put together. I know sometimes things kind of take a, a few different turns. Was there anything that was surprising along the way? Um, as far as surprises, I feel like from our digital side, we had everything organized that we wanted to, but the defense had a defense medical expert that was not really overly useful to them, but we had to kind of deal with that of trying to, anytime that you have somebody that's gonna say this is an accidental fall, having to go back and kind of proving something that's not true. So you had other folks that were testifying as well, and, and you're able to, from the prosecution side, be able to work in the digital evidence in supporting these other pieces of evidence that people are testifying to, right? Yes, and specifically with this one, and part of it, when you're prosecuting a child homicide case where it's abuse, a lot of times your jury, people 
don't want to think that human beings are capable of that type of evil and harm. And so you have people that just are like, no one would ever do this to someone. So you really have to show them that like- That's so true. Yet, yes, there are people out there that are this evil that can cause this type of harm. And so being able to show his messages and his conversation and that moment that you can tell that he, I think we referred to it as a fit of fury, that he just loses it because he's mad that his friend that he was going to go do drugs with canceled on him. And think about that for a second. That's the motive, right? He is upset, and this is the motive that we found in the textbook or in the Facebook message. He is talking to a guy named Mark Denton. Well, they communicate back and forth, and then at some point he tells Nina, which she's working at Sonic, she's entrusted him with this kid, you know, Eloise, he tells Nina that Mark Denton's going to come over and basically they're going to smoke dope. She gets so upset in the next text message. In fact, she says something like, hell no, that's effing crazy. You inviting Mark Denton over, you got so mad when I invited Lily over, right? And now there's the motive. Then all of a sudden, Mark Denton reneges and says, no, let's do it over the weekend. And then what happened at that point, Jan? And that's when we have this kind of 15 to 20 minute time period where you can tell, number one, he's not messaging as much, but one of the next messages, he's saying, I kicked my shoe off, I put a hole in the wall, which there was a hole in the wall that we firmly believe Eloise's head was smashed into. And that he's, um, he's overly pissed, I hate you, I hate this house, I hate everything, I just wanna be done with it all, life included, and F this BS. And that is the message from Mark Denton when Mark said, hey, let's do it this weekend. I don't really want to come over and smoke dope until he sent the message about kicking his shoe off was four minutes. He went into an, a raging anger fit with this child in four minutes. And Timeline was able to tell us all of this because what did we do next? we incorporated the pictures that he took, which was after this. It's amazing. So after those pictures, that's the next thing in your timeline, right? Are the photographs. So he takes photographs. He actually takes photograph of the bathtub that has her vomit in it. And so he takes those pictures. Then he takes the photograph of baby Eloise with the bruise to her face. And that's part of what was so important with the medical testimony of that she has the head injury, which is what caused the vomit, which again, this is something that we see in our child homicides is that any type of a potty accident or any type of a throw up event, that's just gonna make it worse and make the abuse continue. And so he takes a picture of the vomit, then he takes a picture of baby Eloise with the, with the bruise on her face which she has that look of, she's still conscious, but barely. And so the doctors are able to describe her head injury and her skull fracture and her subdural hematomas and what that stage of brain swelling is. 
and kind of explain that like her brain is swelling within her head right now and she's going to lose consciousness. Then the next photographs that he takes are photographs of her in her dirty diaper, which again, the medical experts are able to explain what's happening in her body that's causing that to happen because it, it was a very unusual dirty diaper. And he's taking those pictures, which it was so important because the messages where he said how mad he was, we have this block of time where nothing's happening. So he has 20, 25 minutes where he's continuing to abuse baby Eloise, which again, we have this bite mark on her leg. And I can't explain why people do that, but bite marks are something that it's common in child homicide cases that you'll see a bite mark on the victim. That's horrible. Um, so I have to ask you, when did he text the mom? So after he says that he's kicked the wall and he's done with everything, he messages her 12 minutes later and tells her that he's going to drop Eloise off and he's taking her car because he has her car. He's dropped uh, Nina off at Sonic for work. So he says that he's going to drop her off, which again, that's right before we have all of those pictures. And so we know that things are happening after that point because he would never bring the baby when she's beaten and dying. And then we have those messages. And then I think, so it's 147, it's about 40 minutes after the anger starts that he says, I'm leaving you the car. I need you to take Boo-Boo to the hospital, possibly, possibly. I'm really worried about her. And then his very next message, he says, and I lost my pinky toenail. Because he's obviously kicked something, but concern for himself and his own injury. And possibly baby Eloise needs to go to the hospital. So mom arrives at home though, right? She calls 911 on her way home after this. On the this. way home. And the, does she beat the paramedics there? She, they actually kind of get there simultaneously, so everybody's arriving at once, and so the, it, there's a stairwell outside the apartment, and it's kind of everybody meets on the stairwell, which, oddly enough, we have other cases that have that exact same scenario. A boyfriend-type person is babysitting, mom's at work. They always call mom and tell mom, you need to get here. Mom ends up calling 911, and then everybody's kind of meeting as the trauma of finding your child in that state. Yeah, Jan and I have a trial starting on Monday. Eerie, eerie, eerie similar to this case. I mean, just so similar to the things that she's, she's speaking of about their actions of bite marks and bruises and things of that nature. And it's just, it's so eerie that a lot of these child homicides are so similar. Tell me what happened after that. So you've said, you know, mom arrives there, the paramedics arrive there. What's your timeline looking like at this point, what you're presenting? Well, at this point, that's what we incorporated the 911 call because mom did call 911. And so we had that piece of it and we were able to show that mom didn't have that much information about what happened. She knew something had happened and it was serious, but that helped us in showing like he is the only one with the baby when these injuries are sustained. We also, when she 
when Jacob Hughes dropped Nina off at Sonic earlier that day for her shift, there was a friend of hers that was there and they saw baby Eloise and she was in the car and she didn't have any injuries and she was actually singing a song, which was really important again because our medical expert said if she had any of these injuries before, she would not be acting that way. So we were able to kind of lock it into that he absolutely is the person that did this. Um, and then at that point, everybody goes to the hospital and our lead detective, who's one of the best, she's amazing, she did interviews with them and she locked them into a timeline. And she locked Jacob Hughes into his timeline where he claims he's giving her rescue breasts because he was military trained. So he was trying to save her and he's describing how she was acting, which is completely inconsistent with all of the medical proof. So you're able to take all of this to trial. Tell me what happens at the trial. You present your timeline, then what happens? The jury gets the case. Yes, the jury gets the case and they very, very quickly convicted him of all of the indicted offenses. Um, and I believe he got a life sentence plus additional years. It was additional years. Um, I think about this verdict quite often. Um, this is one I've been on three or 400 in my life, but this is one that gives me solace and gives me happiness because you said earlier that Jan is a firecracker, right? And so I, wasn't, I didn't know if I wanted to say this, but I do because it makes me happy. The one thing that makes me happy is what Jan did to this man at that trial. So as soon as the last, and it was televised, as soon as the last juror walks out of the courtroom after the verdict read, he stands up, starts, looks at Jan, looks at her uh, other attorneys over on the table, and starts going around the room, F you, F you, F you, F you, F you. And I think about that all the time because I hope he thinks about her and the way she put this case together every day. And that gives me solace for some strange reason to know that she upset him so much because she put him in jail or in state prison for the rest of his damn life. And I only was able to do that with Chad Gish's help. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for being on today. We really appreciate it. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And it's so great for us to be able to hear from your perspective, uh, from the prosecutor's perspective. And Chad, as always, you're such a great friend to us here at Magnet. And, and thank you for all you well, do. Well, you have another one. We have a lot of cases yes. we could help teach with. I so, like so. Magnet. I, come, I use it all the time. Yeah. Well, thank you all <laughs> so very much. We appreciate you being on here today. Thanks, Kim. Thank Thanks. you. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Lindsay Ward with production help from Phil Froklidge. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>